We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think... Hi, and welcome to Behind the Headlines. I'm Neil Bradley. With me, as always, is Joe. Hello. We're also joined this week by Alan. Hi, everyone. And Bahar is joining us as well. From the Netherlands. Hello. Bahar. Hello. Hello. And do we have Corey on the line? Corey's there. We do have Corey on the line. There he is. Hello, everybody. Um, I believe today is... Alan, is today your birthday? It's not, actually. There's a, a little story behind I thought that. it was today. It Why is. did Facebook tell me it was today? Cause uh, because I, cause he's incognito. I don't. There. Yeah, ah. that was my uh, my lame attempt at, at trying to he's conceal a, my true identity. I, well, I think it, I think it yeah. probably threw, it threw the CIA off pretty totally. well. Totally. Well, I just blew it. It did, right? I just blew his cover. They now know this is the land. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well... I've it, was, it, it was two Happy weeks birthday, ago, anyway. so thank you. Thank you, Neil. Okay, so this week, um, we're just going to look back quickly at the, the week that was. The first of the three big elections in the in Europe this, this year, well, the biggest in the West, anyway. Um, but kind of a lot of expectation that with Trump having won in the U.S., the establishment, in quotes, might fall in one election after the other. The Dutch one was up first. That didn't happen. Geert Wilders did not win a majority of seats, assuming everything went counted as proper. That's probably assuming too much. Who knows what goes on in elections across the West these days. There's enough evidence that they've been tampering with election results, referendum results, since since forever, really. So, um, nevertheless, Wilders uh, and his populist party in the Netherlands accept the results. So he came in second, making a moderate gain on his previous count in, 20, in 2012, I think, uh, which means the incumbent party, led by Prime Minister Mark Rutte, remains the highest polling party. Um, he wasn't... They weren't... The, Mark Rutte's party was in coalition with a the largest, let's call it the largest centre-left party in the Netherlands. And that centre-left party was trashed. They lost 29 seats. That was the biggest change in the whole election. The smaller parties won more seats, including Wilder's party. Uh, Rutte's party lost a few seats, but the centre-left com- just completely collapsed. That That is a kind of similarity with what we saw in the US last year with the collapse of the Democrats. So that's kind of interesting. That's, that's a similarity with the U.S. Um, the difference, of course, here is that the so-called populist did not win. I thought he might, actually. I thought he might get a majority. Um, international media was certainly bigging him up, and apparently in the Netherlands as well. Um, Bahar has been watching it in uh, Dutchland. What what did yes. you think, Bahar? Did you think Wilders was going to win, or were you surprised that he didn't? Well, I think earlier polls showed 
that uh, Wilders was very popular and uh, yeah, among the Dutch citizens. But I think with the Turkey, uh, the whole Turkey business, I think people saw that uh, Rutte is not afraid. Uh, he's not a, a wuss because that's kind of the image uh, that the media painted about him, that he was uh, a bit weak, you know, minister. and yeah. And that Wilders is, uh, he's not afraid to say anything what's on his mind. But I think what also uh, could have contributed is uh, uh, what he said during the debate, uh, I mean, Geert Wilders. There was a debate between uh, Rutte and uh, Wilders, and uh, he asked Wilders, okay, so you want to uh, ban every Quran uh, uh in the whole country, how are you going to do that? Are you going to establish some kind of Quran police who goes to each door and takes the Quran up, takes the Qurans uh, out of the out of the house? Uh, how are you going to pay for that? And he didn't really answer that question. He kept going back to Islam is evil and blah blah blah. And I think people kind of started to, at least some people started to realize that he doesn't really have a good idea on how he's going to do these things. Mm -hmm. And if you look at his plan, his election program plan, if you, let's say the one from uh, Rutte, from the prime minister, his plan consists of 30 pages, whereas uh, Geert Wilder's plan was just one page. And it also had some uh, punctuation mistakes, some grammar mistakes. And uh, he would write, for example, that he wants to de-Islamize the Netherlands and that this would save 7.2 billion euros. But there is no explanation whatsoever as to how he got that number. So I think people kind of maybe thought that because Rutte has been uh, a prime minister he has experience talking to other countries. They thought that he would maybe be the better option. And in the debate, uh, he also asked Wilders, you said that you wanted, you only wanted to do business with Turkey if it becomes Switzerland. But it's not going to become Switzerland. You're going to talk to at all. You can't do that because you have to make deals with them, such as the refugee deal. And he couldn't really give an answer to that either. So I think the debates kind of played a role, uh, his poor plans. and But while in the international media, you know, they were very... Uh, uh, yeah, I, I think that, you know, the Turkish situation kind of changed that. Perhaps. I mean, that's that's what the Dutch media is saying right now. Right, okay. Or we can, yeah, we can analyze it after the fact. I mean, we we brought it up last week, and I, I suggested that it would be the other way around. This would only help yeah. uh, builders' calls. Yes. But the uh, the other obvious solution, uh, I, I say obvious in hindsight, uh, is that it would actually help the, the incumbent government because, you know, it's cutting some of the steam out from uh, the anti-Islam platform that builders has if the existing government... Mm -hmm stands up to Turkey. So Turkey did the existing government a favor in that respect um, yes. by having this spot just before the election. Um, uh, in case anyone's been living under a rock, of all the so-called populist leaders coming up in Europe, 
Trump included, including Trump, yes. Wilders is far and away the most explicit about uh, the beef with, he says it's a beef with Islam, right? He makes a distinction. He says yes. he has no problem with Muslims per se, but Islam has mm -hmm. to go. Yes. He wants to close all mosques, all uh, Islamic schools, no Korans, no uh, hijab. I mean, no hijab allowed in the workplace. So he just wants Islam totally out of the country. Okay. And, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, about it. Uh -huh. Well, the, there was a, a story about a, a year ago about Wilders, I think, who came to the U.S. to Texas where there was this art installation of some kind that, um, I, I forget all the details, but it, I think it was anti-Islamic, basically. And there was a big hullabaloo, and apparently there was some kind of attempted violence at the scene. But uh, it just seemed as though he was, um, that, that's his only platform. I, I hate Muslims. Uh, and I'll even fly to Texas to attend this anti-Muslim art installation. Um, the guy seems like, you know, from my impression, he's a buffoon, a clown. Mm -hmm. um, but do Thing some is, people actually take him seriously? Or? I think they do. I mean, they yeah, said the same uh, thing about Trump. Go ahead, Bar. Yeah, uh, there are. there is a population of people who says um, all these refugees, they're getting free things. We're hard, we're working very hard, and we have to work for you know our healthcare and our education. And then all these people are coming in, uh, and they're taking all you know things for free. And and Wilder's actually someone who's speaking for us, and he's not afraid to say all refugees out. He, his number one are, is the Dutch population, and not the refugees. Um, but then you know the the left party. Uh, Groen Links. Uh, it actually received uh, more seats than since 1990 or something. And uh, one of their speakers actually said, uh, we want more refugees or we want to help the refugees. So there's also a Dutch population who voted for them and who think that it's okay to take care of refugees because at some point we could be in the same situation. But then there are also people who don't want that, and they see that Geert is actually saying what other politicians don't dare to say. So there, he definitely has some supporters. Um, for Wilders, did he, where does he stand on EU? He wants out. He wants next. He wants out. Right, same as yeah. Le Pen in France. Um, yeah. Okay, that's interesting, because the, with the exception of his party coming second, mm -hmm. all the winners, from what I can see, are all oh, pretty much pro-EU. Um, yeah. And it's an, it's an interesting, there's, so there's two cleavages there. There's the Muslim slash immigrants issue, and then there's the EU, and to what extent the country's for or against being remaining in it. Um, the Mark Rutte's government party that's going to be back in government now, they are sort of basically pro-EU, pro-status mm -hmm. quo, um, they obviously don't have the same uh, platform about immigrants as Wilders does, but they are still, they, I mean, the, the name of his party is also a populist something. It's a popular party, right? 
they're also kind of to the right. Yeah, they are. Right. So mm-hmm. it, the, 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 the end result is that the map of the Dutch election results is still pretty much it's all pretty to much the right. right. Yeah. Ma- majority sure. to the right anyway. So um, it may not be Wilders in power, but there's still the same underlying trend yeah. towards the right. Yeah, it just didn't happen maybe as um, as people expected, but mm-hmm. and now Rutte has to uh, establish a coalition so that um, so he picks three or yeah he has to pick around four political parties or five so that they all have seventy five seats in total and then they can make decisions. But everyone in the House of Representatives said we don't want to work with Wilders. So even though Wilders came in second. He won't be in the coalition, but he did say that I'm going to make uh, Rutte's life very difficult. So he's going to keep fighting, and you know what not. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. And I just want to say. Yeah, go ahead. Just a quick thing about the uh, the protests in Rotterdam. Uh, so I was in the car. Uh, a few days ago and I was listening to the radio and and they had this radio program going on and they were asking people what do you think about what happened in Rotterdam so someone calls in I think he was Turkish or or Moroccan and he said hey guys do you know that uh, campaigners were against the referendum they are just allowed to campaign you know whenever and wherever and the, the radio host said, yeah, we know, we know, and we were also wondering about that. But that's not really what we're talking about. We're asking, what do you think about those monkeys in Rotterdam uh, creating chaos? And I was thinking to myself, what kind of question is that? Of course it's wrong what those 12 people did, you know, but they're taking the focus away from what's important, and that is that campaigners in favor of the referendum are being treated very strictly than, you know, the others. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're not really wanting to talk about. They just want to talk about the crazy monkeys in Rotterdam, which is sounds kind of racist to me, but anyway, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. You're talking about the referendum in, in Turkey there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're talking about the, yeah, it's interesting that those Sorry, two. Yeah. yeah, it's it's interesting those two things happen together. You know, um, that this issue just blew mm-hmm. up uh, right around the time that uh, just before the general election in Holland, you know, we have this issue with Turkey blowing up, and obviously, like we were mentioning last week, Tur- um, Holland has quite a large percentage of um, Turkish, either kind of dual nationals or Turkish nationals living in in Holland and have lived there for quite a long time. Same thing in Germany. Um, same thing in Austria and a few other places. Those are the main countries that have a high, a large Turkish, um, large Turkish population. And um, yeah, it's, it's and I mean, of course, you could suggest that it was the that the Turks chose this time. I mean, you know, okay, it's it's what it's like a month at least, about a month or so until the referendum in Turkey. But maybe they just coincided, or whatever. It's just kind of I suppose it's election time of year. Or referendum time of year, you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's kind of uh, it's kind of interesting that um, that the two coincided, and you know, it highlights the um, obviously the thing on most people's minds was 
in, in Europe or in Holland was the Dutch general election. This guy, Gert Wilders, far-right, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim candidate, uh, is, is up for a possible election. He didn't get it, as it turned out. He didn't become prime minister. But um, uh, at the same time, you have um, you know, Turkey attempting to, and being stopped from having, the Turkish government stopped from having uh, rallies to support their referendum um, next month. And it all just looks like immigrant issues, you know, Turks... I mean, the thing, the strange thing is that, I mean, Turkish people living in Holland and in uh, Germany and other European countries, they have not, that hasn't been an issue, and they are not, they're not immigrants, technically, okay, they are immigrants, I suppose, but they're not the kind of immigrants that everybody's freaking out about now, you know, which is largely mm -hmm. recent immigrants or very recent immigrants coming from Africa and the Middle East because of wars and wars and, and some more wars. So, uh, and that's the immigrant issue, you know, but it's all being bundled together with, with, um, with, with Islam, you know. Um, there's quite a lot of immigrants coming from, from the Middle East and, and Turkey who are not Muslim at all, you know. Uh, that's what people don't, never seem to get mentioned, you know. Um, and certainly not practicing Muslims, you know. Uh, or, or very, you know, hardline Muslims or, you know, traditionalist or whatever. Uh, but it's all being, you know, messed up, thrown in together and muddled together, you know, the whole issue. And it's, and it's being used to kind of, to create an issue that wasn't there before, which is, and to, to muddy the waters in a certain sense, you know, by mixing in long-term, first or se second generation uh, Muslims living in European countries, from Turkey or from, in the case of France, from Algeria, Morocco, uh, who are... French nationals have been living there for a long time. Okay, maybe they're not quite as integrated as white French people, but they're basically French nationals that live in France, and most of them see themselves as French to some extent or another. Um, and that's all being, you know, the, the influx of recent immigrants is being used to, to you know, try and make an issue out of something that uh, hasn't been an issue, you know, in a long time. And the, the longer... The longer um, these Muslims that live in France, like uh, of, uh, or live in France or in Holland or in Germany, uh, the longer they live there, and I'm here I'm talking about like in Germany and in Holland, the Turks or in France, uh, uh, people of Moroccan or Algerian uh, descent, the longer they live in France, the more, in theory or technically, the more uh, they become mm, nationalized, let's say, or Frenchified or you know, the further they get, each gen passing generation gets further and further from its roots, effectively, you know. you think there would have been a problem with a clash of religions at a time when these people actually moved en masse into France, but that didn't happen. It's like 60, 70, 80 years ago in some cases. And there's no issue. But then now they're trying to make it into an issue with the indigenous kind of Muslim population of these European countries that have been here for a long time. Suddenly there's an issue with these people, you know, because of what? Because of a very recent you know, bomb, NATO bombing campaign in Syria and Libya, for example, and ongoing U.S. wars and NATO wars in, in Africa, and people fleeing those wars, and suddenly you've got a major clash of civilization situation. I mean, and the only third component then that you could add into that is these kind of like very dodgy, suspicious-looking terror attacks that happen, especially the large-scale ones that happen in, in European countries. Put all of those three together, 
Yeah, it's all very complicated and murky, and it just seems like, oh my God, the Muslims are coming, and the media whips it up, the Muslims are coming, the Muslims... But there's very different aspects to the whole equation there, you know? And they tend to get all just thrown in together by by the media and by politicians to make it into a crisis when it's it's not. And as I think as Gimby was saying on the chat room there just recently, well, the really the only issue here, and the, the one issue that would make this a non-issue, this Muslim in, Muslims in Europe or Im- immigrants in Europe, uh, a non-issue would be just stop waging the wars that cause the immigrants. Because none of these things were any kind of an issue until that happened. So it's not about the eth- religious divisions within European countries between Muslim and Christian, because that, that hasn't really been an issue for like for 80 years since it became a uh, since a lot of uh, Muslims from former European colonial countries moved to, moved to European countries, that hasn't been an issue in all the, in all those years. It's only an issue now. So what has changed? Well, what has changed is NATO has been bombing the crap out of Muslim, uh, predominantly Muslim countries, causing influx of refugees. Uh, that's all it is. So if you want to make this issue go away, stop bombing. Don. Well, thanks for listening. We'll so <laughs> Bahar, are there any protests still going on? Protests slash riots slash trouble on the streets? Any no-go zones? Um, I don't think so. No. Okay, it's calmed down no. on the street. Um, it didn't yeah. calm down at the level of government to government this week. Um, mm-hmm. We've got the Turks calling the Dutch leaders fascists and Nazis. We've got Turkish newspapers um, doing montages, full page, Merkel with a Hitler moustache, calling her Frau Hitler. Uh, We've got um, Turkish ministers encouraging Turks living in Europe to have as many babies as possible. We've got Turkish ministers encouraging, um, oh, uh, suggesting, not too subtly, that they might just send another 15,000 refugees and, I guess, Syrians mostly, but whoever is stationed in Turkey might send another 15,000 of them to Europe. 15,000 a month? 15,000 a month, yeah. And and the, the probably mistranslated, but the quote was that just, they would do it to blow their mind. Yeah. <laughs> I was reading all this and going, what yeah. in the hell are they doing? Because they... Well, I shouldn't get exasperated, but maybe, maybe that's maybe maybe the 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 right wing are correct, because Turkish ministers, straight in the horse's mouth, are just supporting to a T everything they've been saying about the dangers of the Islamization of Europe. We are we are they may as well have said we are going to send hordes over to you, and they're going to uh, breed like rabbits, and then they're going to take over your countries, and we win, ha ha ha. He may as well have said that. These Turkish leaders. Um, have they lost their mind? No. Maybe maybe they're trying to... What, what's going on there? But I was wondering about well, the same thing. I, I don't know if, if the Turkish leaders uh, are handling this situation as best as possible. I don't know if they're going too far with their uh, threats or... I don't know. Well, besides the issue of what they should do, 
and shouldn't do. I mean, it's happened. So what happens next, logically? I mean, this should only support... Okay, it's always useful to for people to understand what's going on because uh, we're all subject to propaganda and especially if it's years long or decades long propaganda, it's always useful to kind of um, to try and um, to try take and take a step uh, back. To, yeah, well, step take a step back or to to get out of that programming a little bit, uh, to just flip it around. <clears throat> Especially when it's an East West kind of thing or Muslim Christian kind of thing, to just flip it around and uh, imagine if the shoe were on the other foot, basically. Imagine there are um, 1 million, I don't know, let's just use that figure. Imagine there are 1 million American citizens, American nationals, living in Holland. And none of them, and they're all Christian. And there's an atmosphere of anti-Christian sentiment. And there's an atmosphere of anti-American sentiment. And there's, you know, attacks being waged against Americans, specifically Americans, in Holland, and against them for being American and for being Christian. And their churches are having, uh, you know, swastikas or something daubed on them, or whatever. Um, and the government of Holland is appears to be, uh, you know, kind of prejudiced against them. What would the American government be saying? That's yeah, not fair. I mean, it's, That's yeah. not fair. <laughs> what would they be? I don't know. What they be. They, they'd be pleading a case they for be, their people. Be, right. And they'd be, you know, saying all sorts of, and you'd have American politicians saying all sorts of nasty things about the Dutch. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd, so, probably, you'd probably have lots of stuff w- in the American media. I get you. One reaction breeds another reaction. And off they go. No, I'm just saying to put the, put what the Dutch, what the Turks, what the Turkish government are doing in context. If you want to try and understand, if you if you can't understand why the Turkish government are saying what they're saying, or if they're going too far in what they're saying, we'll just put the shoe on the other foot and imagine what a Western government would be saying in the same mm-hmm. context. If well, don't don't look don't look at it as as Holland. Imagine there's a million American citizens in Turkey, and they're being the government is a bit is showing that it's kind of not very favorable towards them. They're kind of like marginalized or being marginalized. They're they're being criticized for being Christians. There's an anti-Christian sentiment, anti-American Christian sentiment, and um, and they're being prevented. You know, John Kerry comes over to try and uh, uh, electioneer with those one million American citizens for some important referendum in America. And the Turkish government says, no, you can't do it, Mr. Kerry. You're not allowed. We're banning you from the country. We're kicking you out. What approach would America mm-hmm. take to Turkey in that situation? They'd bomb them, would they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Probably. It's war. Just turn it around. Yeah. But you see, you see, we don't, we don't do that, and we think that whenever, whenever, because of that programming that I just mentioned, we think that Muslim, uh, you know, predominantly Muslim or countries with 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 Muslim governments, effectively, uh, that when they do stuff, that it's it's unreasonable and irrational and. You know, it's radical Muslim, not jobbery, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and we kind of tend to paint it with that brush. But uh, like I said, if you switch it around, it doesn't seem, it wouldn't, you wouldn't be surprised that a Western country would do the same if they were in the same position. 
Well, there, there's a, there seems to be a. But I know that's uh, very unpopular. I know it's very unpopular. I know it's very unpopular. I know it's very unpopular these days to actually try and get out of your little kind of camp, your side, and each person get out of their camp and try and see the other side, or try and turn things around, or try and look at stuff in a from both sides of the equation. I know that's not very popular these days, so I apologize to anybody who's triggered by that. And that's what makes understanding the whole refugee crisis so difficult for so many people is that they can't come to the crux of the issue and see what caused it and then also understand that when these people are leaving their countries they do bring their baggage with them and so you know when they're not integrated into society or you know they're they need welfare benefits or their youth are causing crime you know it's like any other refugee or immigrant influx throughout history they're different and there are issues, um, but, you know, right. this whole, it gets all, it gets so lumped on, into this Islamicization process that it's just so, it's impossible. It's that programming that makes everything black and white so that everybody, it's either they're all saints or they're all terrorists and nobody can really see, you know, uh, the, the nuances. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Dutch media... Yeah, go ahead, Bar. Uh, the Dutch media has been, uh, you know, very critical of Erdogan lately, and they tell, they say things like, "How can you say that we're all Nazis?" And people are commenting, saying Erdogan he has to go away, you know, dirty Muslim. So there is a lot of anti-Erdogan stuff going on. And when I talk to Dutch residents here and I ask them, "What do you think about the whole Erdogan situation?" And they say, well, I don't think, uh, his, I don't think his ministers are allowed to come, you know, and the things he said were unacceptable. That's, that's what they tell me. And then I tell them, well, did you know that the Dutch political members of the political parties in the Netherlands, that they went to the UK and campaigned there? Do you think that's normal? <laughs> and then they said, oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of go silent. Right. So I think they they only get you know one side of the story and it's highly mm-hmm. bi- biased against Erdogan. Mm-hmm. So yeah. the media is really you know uh, forming opinions for the people basically. Mm-hmm. And the bigger picture is that the Netherlands is part of this whole kind of Atlanticist West uh, mentality that is following whatever they're told to believe about uh, evil Middle Eastern countries. So, uh, you know, what seems to be part of what's behind this is Erdogan's um, recent uh, detente with Russia. Uh, it's, um, it's going after ISIS in a relatively serious way, at least compared to what it was doing months back. And so um, not allowing the foreign ministers uh, to campaign for this referendum to empower Erdogan further is kind of payback. Uh, it's it's politicized, uh, you know, um, kind of vindictive. Um, no, we don't like you. You know, we don't want you here, uh, and we certainly don't want to assist you in helping Erdogan to become stronger, mm-hmm. a stronger leader, especially since mm-hmm. he's now pals with Russia. Um, and on that note, I was going to ask you, Bahar, if you felt that. Uh, the anti 
kind of Russia is evil sentiment in uh, the Netherlands is comparable to the types of things we're seeing in other places like the U.S. Um, well, what are you... I don't really understand the question. If, if the anti-Russia propaganda is the same in the U.S.? No. Is it, is it similar in, uh, in the Netherlands as, as what we're hearing in the U.S.? Or is it... With regard to Russia? Yeah, yeah. Do, do, are, all the, are, are all the Dutch peoples all like Putin's evil? Um, well, the media certainly... I think, well, yeah, I think the majority of the Dutch people as well. But I think when it comes to the family members of those who died during the MH17 crash, that they're not very trusting of the government, especially when two journalists came from Ukraine and they had footage of, you know, uh, remains, body remains still la laying there. Um, you know, people get a little bit suspicious. And then you have... Uh, then you have the people who read alternative news articles and they're a bit more up-to-date about uh, Russia. But I think the majority, you know, still thinks that Russia is kind of evil. And there was even a Dutch article that I, uh, I came across. The headline was, uh, look, Erdogan is now buddies with Putin, mm. you know. So they're picturing them both quite negatively. Mm -hmm. I think all so of this is similar, yeah. Yeah. All of this is motivated by, it's all an Atlanticist kind of mindset or an Atlanticist uh, mm -hmm. cabal in, in Europe that has been dominating things really since, kind of since the Iraq war, really. Um, the Iraq invasion, so, you know, 14, 15 years. Uh, and it is largely controlled by, uh, you know, the European Union and Europe, at least until Trump, let's say, has been dominated by this really close tie, ideological ties, Atlanticist ties between major powers in Europe and and the US, you know, and obviously that's been defined by uh, or involves a, a anti-Russian stance because of, like we've said many times and talked about and written about many times, the problem with, uh, the problem for America that Russia poses in, in, in terms of its potential to more or less kick the U.S. out of uh, Eurasia uh, and unite Eurasian kind of, or create, encourage and implement Eurasian integration, economic, political, even military integration in Eurasia, which would mean the, the end of the road for the U.S. And the U.S. has been um, fighting against that and part of, in fact, the Iraq war was well, for that specific purpose, to uh, to try and hold on to American hegemony in the world by making sure that it uh, consolidated its control over over Middle Eastern resources and kept Russia back and uh, kept China on the on the hook type of thing on the line mm -hmm. and um, so that's 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 dom has dominated politics for the past fifteen years in, in the West here and, and, and pretty much in most of the globe. Um, uh, one, and, um... and yeah, I was going to say now that uh, I mean this Turkish thing, particularly like I think uh, as you were mentioning, Bahar the. You know, people, the media talking about Putin being friends with Erdogan and stuff. You know, there's a the Turkish stream is is back mm -hmm. online as well, which is basically Russian gas to Europe via Turkey, which uh, was more or less that that channel for uh, more Russian energy, oil and gas from 
uh, from Russia to Europe was stopped a few years ago uh, by the EU slash NATO slash the Atlanticists, basically when they wanted to, the Russians were trying to strike a deal to put it through uh, over under the Caspian and into Bulgaria. And the Bulgarian government was pressured to basically say no and to, to stop it happening, you know. Because the way the U.S. in particular does not has not wanted uh, any has not certainly has not wanted consolidation or an increase in dependence European dependence on Russian energy resources, and they've done everything they can to try and stop that from happening uh, and, and to roll back the existing um, the existing pipelines and, and connections between Russia and Europe. Uh, so. This, I mean, this is just part of the same deal, basically, uh, this anti-Erdogan situation, especially since um, over the last year where, as I said, the Turkish stream came back online, Russia and Turkey did a deal, or renewed a deal, basically, to <coughs> to supply, to use Turkey to supply gas from Russian gas to Europe, uh, and in particular since last year, since the coup, since that change in, in viewpoint, or it was either a change in viewpoint by from the Erdogan government, or it was post-coup where he had an opportunity and has exploited that opportunity to get rid of as many of the kind of fifth columnists within Turkey that have been running Turkey for a long time. And these are people who, in, in politics and the military and intelligence services, who basically were running Turkey from behind the scenes, that kind of eminent screes that were there long before Erdogan came to power. And just because Erdogan became the president... It didn't didn't really change the fact that they were still more or less running the the major aspects of Turkish uh, uh, foreign policy and even and domestic policy. Uh, but since the coup, the attempted coup, and we have to remember there was an attempted coup that nearly succeeded last July, and it was an attempt to get rid of Erdogan, and it came from inside Turkey, with the help of well, it came from this fifth fifth column uh, types who are basically. NATO stay behind, kind of NATO aligned, Western aligned individuals who've been there for a long time, and they try to get rid of Erdogan. And the fact that they failed, reportedly, apparently, possibly with the help of Russia, uh, Erdogan took the opportunity to try and uh, strip as many of those people from their positions and take back control of the country. And you, we see that in the last year, uh, Erdogan has been, um, you know, pretty much roundly demonized by everyone in Europe and and by. To, maybe to a lesser extent by by the Americans, but they don't have to say much. As long as the European governments are, are shouting the loudest, that, that does the job, you know? So, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And just one small comment. Um, at least China was being nice. Uh, one day this week, they said that Turkey is an important country in Eurasia, and important dialogue partner for the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Mm. So it's funny that they emphasized it this, you know, right after the whole Netherlands Turkey EU thing. Mm -hmm. So they seem to be supporting Turkey. While at the same time, the German government has said there's no chance of Turkey joining the EU at least not for 15 years or something. So yeah, it's it's set up. It's kind of like. You just hope that they they'll get a move on with it, and and but the thing is that the Turks, I think the Turks, like the Turkish leaders, feel like they have this card over Europe, and they mm -hmm. still want something. I mean, who knows? I can't I can't tease out what exactly it is they want. 
Um, Turks? The Turks. I imagine it would be... I mean, they, they kind of said, it, it, in, in all of the insults that were flung back and forth, one of them, one of the earliest ones, as the, ri- the so-called riots were going on, was um, Erdogan saying, it's those Westerners <laughs> who have got all the terrorists in our country mm. and in Syria. Um, I would imagine that he's thinking, you know, we want this to stop. Um, but it, it, it's not it's not completely clear because at the same time there there are there appears to be support from Erdogan's control of the government in Turkey supporting some of the factions in the north of Syria. Mm. So uh, <clears throat> no, but, well, they're they're supporting. I mean, again, the media kind of bundles that all in together and says that Turkey is supporting the the Free Syrian Army or whatever, blah blah blah. blah. Turkey, what Turkey was doing all along, well. It changed again. You have to remember that it was a coup, an attempted coup last year. I mean, you can't under under you can't overstate the fact that there was an attempt to, an attempt to violently remove Erdogan from power last year. By who? By someone within the country? How much influence do they have? Probably quite a lot. If they almost succeeded. Uh, so when you talk about what was going on pre-coup attempt last year, who was doing it? You know. I'm uh, talking. I'm talking about since then, and even since then, yeah. yeah. But but the point. So so before that, you had a, a lot of allegations of ISIS coming back and forward over the border with Syria, blah 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 blah. You know, getting weapons being protected by by. Or sorry, with with Turkey and being protected by the Turks and going back into Syria and mm-hmm. basically uh, which video all evidence, right. not just allegations, right? <laughs> video, right. Well, well, as as best as you can have video evidence of of that kind of thing, like you know, of who the people are, etc. Well, the oil tankers, right. Yeah, but uh, the point is that was kind of pre-coup, and then you have post-coup, and post-coup what you've had, so we're talking about uh, whatever, nine months or so, um, you're talking about uh, claims that that Erdogan is, or the Turkish government or whatever, is supporting groups within northern Syria, and Turkey has always maintained, uh, particularly recently, that... uh, and I was always always focused on the north of Syria. Uh, they didn't go very far in down into Syria. They weren't attempting to take over. Their, their focus was on the border areas, effectively the border areas of Turkey and Syria. Why? Well, it's pretty clear why. Because the Americans and the Europeans, basically NATO, the Americans effectively were uh, had decided after Russia uh, entered into the Syrian conflict, they had decided that their plan B. Plan A being that the jihadis would overrun Syria and you would have a client regime set up there and it would be all of Syria would belong to us. Uh, but Plan B was, oh, that's not going to happen because what Russia's doing, so well, let's use the Kurds to, uh, let's, let's support the Kurds in the north in having their uh, independent country. And not just in the north of Syria, but it would stretch across into the north of Iraq and possibly, unlikely, less likely into Iran. Iranians wouldn't have any of that, I suppose, but you're talking about a chunk of northern Iraq, a chunk of northern Syria, and um, and the threat to Turkey, obviously, from that, was that the, that the Kurds would take a chunk, and I mean, there obviously there's been a long-term uh, conflict in, in, in southern parts of Turkey with the Kurds there, you know, wanting their own home, homeland. So... Erdogan saw this, the Turkish government saw this as a clear kind of threat. If the Americans are supporting the Kurds and their independence, uh, including a homeland in northern Iraq and, and Syria, well, it's not unreasonable to assume that these people are going to take a chunk of Turkey as well. 
forcibly from us. What are we going to do? Well, we're going to we're go- Turkey. The Turkish military invaded to secure that northern area of, of Syria and fight against ISIS, Al Qaeda. Throw all these names around. They were basically fighting against anybody who was attempting to, and including the Kurds, obviously, the, mm-hmm. who were attempting to to to. They were threatening Turkish territorial integrity with the help of the Americans by establishing, trying to establish a de facto Kurdish homeland in northern Syria, an independent country. And the one thing they were talking about was that they would, they weren't so concerned if they were further east in Turkey, but once they crossed, the, the Turks, Erdogan said this many times, you're not allowed to cross the Euphrates. You're not allowed to go across uh, further west across the Euphrates and link up, for example, with the Mediterranean. Because in that case, uh, it, well, well, I mean, having a, a coastline to the Mediterranean gives any new state, whatever. I mean, it's an even even more serious threat. You know, they have a they have a seaport. They have access to you know to, to shipping oil and gas, etc. The whole thing is obviously a bit complicated. But these people were seeing where all of this was going, basically, and it was not in Turkey's favor. So, so what's amazing is that people were like. And this is fueled by the Western press. Everybody was like, Turkey, what's Turkey doing in northern Syria? Oh, evil Turkey, evil Turkey. Look, Syria had already been invaded five years ago by hordes of Western-backed, U.S.-backed mercenaries. So the idea that Turkey would then come in and protect its own uh, interests along its border in the context of the U.S. already having basically flooded the country with mercenaries and, and attempted to wreck the place for the past four years... What's there to complain about? Get off your freaking high horse. What are you talking about? Of course Turkey's going to be involved there. Iran's involved. Iraq's involved. Everybody's involved. But Turkey's not allowed to. It's nonsense. You know? Mm-hmm. So the whole thing is, Turkey has obviously been demonized uh, up the wazoo for a long time. And in my opinion, unfairly. And I think what the Turks want from European, what, what Erdogan and co. want from Europe, basically is that they want to be they don't want to be isolated and sidelined, uh, and therefore potentially um, dismembered, dismembered, or yeah, set up for well, one, that's just one more of those Middle Eastern Muslim countries. Let's invade it, and they, they, you know they want to hedge their bets or protect themselves against uh, being pigeonholed in that way or put into that category of you know all those crazy Middle Easterners type of thing, you know. And um, and the other and thing is, th- the other thing is that Turkey is a big enough country and has a big enough population. To actually do that, I mean, they see themselves as it's a big country. It's bigger than it's bigger than most European countries. Uh, it has a bigger population than most European countries. They so have it's the same size as Germany, right? They have a lot of million. right. They have a lot of they have a lot of kind of natural resources. They can do a lot of business. This, they're basically it's just geopolitics. They want to they want um, to be given or afforded what they think think they are due, and they're not about to just walk away and, and be some vassal state. And once a country reaches a certain size and has, feels like it has a certain amount of power, it starts to make demands. Mm-hmm. You know, and if they're not making the right demands, well then, especially as far as the West is concerned, well then, the West calls them all sorts of nasty names, like bad man, butchering his people, dictator, Nazi, whatever, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, mm-hmm. um, next up in Europe, uh, the French elections, there were a couple of incidents uh, this week in France, uh, something bizarre happened at the at a major par- uh, at Paris airport. Uh, some guy was shot and killed. He apparently was 
Hopped up on. Hopped up on something. Might have been drunk or drugged up. Um, Tried to steal a policeman's gun. They neutralized him. Shot him dead in the airport terminal, I think. Yeah, or outside. Uh, no links to anything. Well, I mean, he's of Muslim descent. Got him. <laughs> got got him links s- links to Islam. <laughs> yeah, he's got a Middle Eastern name. He's got links to Muhammad. Um, Way back. On the same day, there was a school shooting. Or an attempted school shooting, I think. Yeah, well, last week on the show, we said that if, you know, there is an agenda in Europe to encourage right-wing parties, uh, anti-Islam parties to gain power, then uh, leading up to the French elections, you'll probably see more um, Muslim kind of quote-unquote terror attacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, because obviously that plays into the hands of people like Marine Le Pen in France. It'll swing more votes in her favour, you know, it'll increase. And of course, that kind of a thing that happened a couple of days ago, one guy, that doesn't, that's really small potatoes these days, it's no big, no big deal. But we have to keep, we'll have to keep watching to see what happens between now and then, you know. Um, well, well, and, I think and French authorities have updated to say that the, the attack was a, a terrorist incident, quote-unquote, mm. and so they've placed three people in custody so far. So it's now officially a, a terrorist attack by a radicalized Muslim. Right. So, um, yeah, it's. I think the politics and what's going on in the world behind the scenes and the, by the power brokers and stuff, it's increasingly going to be... De- defined by a f- kind of a, a factionalism and there are different groups competing and who, who want different things and all of it's motivated by largely by greed and money and, and, and what serves individual groups best interests in terms of their greed and gaining power and influence and money in the moment in the short term so I think increasingly it's going to be uh, less we're going to be less able to see some kind of longer term plan and just see that these people are just they're becoming increasingly reckless and they don't care anymore and they'll just do whatever is necessary to to acquire some short-term gain. But of course, when people act in that kind of reckless way, they tend to end up making a real mess of things and it, that makes it even harder to figure out what the hell's going on, you know? But except that the best prediction, the, the most reliable prediction you can make is just to assume that there's going to be more and more chaos in that kind of situation, you know? But um, I don't know. Over in the UK, the Scots are saying they're going to have another referendum. Yeah. That's more kind of, more of the same. We'll see what happens this time around, but... Um, I don't know if they'll be allowed to, allowed more, to independence. More disintegration, though. It's interesting that it, things can't quite yeah. hold in Western Europe, which has right. been solid for such a long time. Yeah, so the, question, the problem here is trying to figure out whether there's uh, an agenda at work or whether... You know, an actual agenda where someone is bringing the whole situation, particularly in the West, let's say, or uh, to a to a to a certain point, to a denouement. You know, they want to bring it to a to a, let's say a clash of civilizations. They want to bring it there, and they're actively working in that direction. Or if it's just um, a natural process, yeah, a natural process. Or if it's actually a combination of both, uh-huh. that it becomes the circles kind of merge, and it's both. And then, but then, how can you say it's a natural process of people are scheming to make it happen? Well, those schemers are part of the natural process. Mm-hmm. So there's a 
there's a manipulated part of the process, of the natural process, which is apparently natural, and a natural part of the process as well, and it all has to go there anyway. Um, but what's interesting is that uh, the Americans, apparently, I was reading, like, it seems that in recently, in just recent weeks, there's a lot of noise out of the Trump administration about, that is suggestive of, or pointing pretty strongly to the idea of, that the Trump administration is uh, in favour of breaking up Europe. They're in favour of everybody exit, uh, which would be the opposite, let's say, of um, Obama and, well, let's leave it at Obama, the Obama administration, those kind of people, you know, who see that you you got to hold Europe together. The EU is a much better way to control all of these countries at once, have a centralised power, and then we have our hands in through that centralised power, and, you know, that's the best way. But breaking it up is, is no good. But it seems that the... Steve Bannon and his fourth turning and all this kind of stuff uh, it seems to be pushing towards a, it, in fact you know if we're going to recreate the world if we need to do something about America's declining power in the world the best thing for us would be if Europe were to break up because then at least we could we could make uh, deals and make uh, partnerships with individual countries uh, individual countries who were not bound by this European Union kind of ideal or vision or whatever and go back to the old way of where Germany would not necessarily be friends with France uh, and therefore, that would be an opportunity for America or any outside country to go, well, let me be friends with one of them against the other type thing, or, or to work both of them against each other. That, that whole situation is better mm-hmm. uh, looking forward now for the Americans than a unified Europe that might, that is ideologically opposed to Trump uh, and visually opposed to Trump because they can't stand the side of him, right? Uh, all of Europe is slowly and increasingly turning against Trump. They're all, I mean, at least the. If, if the media and what politicians say is any yardstick, well then, uh, this any special Atlanticist relationship between uh, European countries, particularly Western European countries, and America is, and even the UK, is is going, going away. It's going downhill. It's falling apart. It's not happening. So in response to that, uh, the Americans, the Trump administration goes, well, you know, if that's the case, then it's in our interest that all of you be fighting each other. Basically, all of you go back to kind of feudalist feudalist Europe type thing with individual countries, you know, um, and we'll have a better chance of of making America great again mm. by doing individual deals with individual people. Okay, well, that's... Uh, you, I think you could, um, you could also put a positive spin on it as well, and that is that uh, originally Trump was, you know, speaking out against NATO, uh, speaking out against uh, the the trade deals that would only benefit the, uh, the corporatocracy. Um, so he's, he's anti-globalism, uh, anti-IMF in a sense, um, and wants to break up this monopoly that he sees as destructive, not only for the U.S., but for Europe, um, that kind of has its paws into everything. Right. Uh, and while, while it might make, you know, uh, Kind of more honestly brokered trade deals better for the U.S. I think he, I think he, you know, has this kind of um, vision of of the maniacal uh, globalist uh, um, uh, efforts that are being um, made on the whole world to control everything, um, and you know seems to be making some gestures uh, in the direction of breaking all of that up a bit. Um, how far he's going to get uh, in that direction is anybody's guess. Mm. Well, while these things are being said, 
And even while at the level of trade and, say, civilian governance, things are happening, you know, immediately Trump signed the executive order, he pulls out of the TPP, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's one thing. But what's happened at the military level since he came to power? Drone strikes have gone right. up 500%. 10,000 more U.S. troops have been shipped abroad, 2,500 to Kuwait, 2,000 to Poland. Another 10,000 mm-hmm. are being slated to go to Germany next month. Um, 2,500 British Marines just arrived in Estonia. Uh, you know what I mean? The, the military yeah. apparatus is doing, this, is doing one thing, and it's the opposite of the talk about breaking up and bilateral trade arrangements as opposed to global uh, free trade zones, you know? Well, the, will, the, they, they, will they go hand in hand? Is there a lag? Maybe it'll, that'll follow suit after the civilian stuff is sorted out? Or is an attempt to thwart it by creating this military real, reality on the ground? No, military reality on the ground in terms of more U.S. troops in Europe doesn't necessarily mean that they don't support the breakup of Europe. You know, they want individual... They have, they have for example, in Germany and in Italy uh, and in some of the Nordic countries, they have... Um, a lot of uh, American troops, American bases that aren't going to go anywhere, uh, even if there was a breakup. In fact, they would be they'd be more important to be there if there was a breakup in those countries. You know what I mean? Okay. They're not mutually exclusive. Basically, they're not. The troops in Europe aren't necessarily in Europe if based on Bannon and on Trump's vision of a fourth turning and chaos. And a br- I mean, they probably. No, I, I think they see a breakup of Europe, and in the case of a breakup of Europe. Uh, the presence of U.S. troops in those individual countries is even more important. Right, but they're currently all there. This is all happening under the aegis of NATO, yeah. which is military partnership. Yeah, but NATO's America. It's, it's Well, actually, officially, it's... Uh, military partnership with the individual countries. Yes. But, right. I mean, we, we can shorthand it to America because we all know that, yeah. that has they have the, the deciding vote on everything. But at least officially... It's a partnership of sovereign, sovereign countries. Sovereign countries, i.e. not EU, not the EU. Not the EU, correct, yeah. which is why they're trying to actually... Junkers in a rush to start a, a European EU army, right. um, which is being thwarted at every turn right. by the Brits especially. Um, but what I'm getting at, though, is, for example, Brexit happens. Let's say it finally happens. In some form or another, they trigger this Article 50 and they leave, start the process to leave the European Union. Mm. Is that going to diminish in any way Britain's involvement in in effectively maintaining a unified Europe, unified against Russia, and yeah. unified correctly vis-à-vis the Middle East, in i.e. in the same interests as before those globalists? Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean anything. That that would remain unchanged. If if, the, if I think it's it is falling apart, and mm. if if Marine Le Pen. Apart. I mean, these people, Gert Wilder's got more seats. It's, you know, you give it another round of elections kind of thing. And I think ultimately you're seeing the end of the kind of, um, of the European Union, of that, of that vision. And you see, you're going to see countries, and it's going to be exacerbated by, uh, you know, kind of uh, maybe, you know, harsher weather, harsher climate, you know, all sorts of things that, uh, like economic factors uh, tied to climate change and all that kind of stuff that, that will make uh, countries basically say, um, well, let's, you know, we got to, We've got to protect our interests here, you know? And those kind of structures only, the EU structure only, only operates in, in good times. In bad times, everybody 
And it's only, you know, for some countries, it's only 20, for some countries, it's only 15, 10, 15 years. And in other countries, it's 20, 30 years. But that's a drop in the ocean in terms of their own histories of the, the, the sense of national ident- identity. And the sense of national identity in Europe is very strong. Individual identities in Europe has not been eroded really very much by this European enterprise. You know, the, we're all European type thing. And it's not going to last because, and I think the climate is going to be a major factor in interfering with that. And, you know, food shortages, that kind of thing, changing weather patterns, uh, more climate chaos basically uh, that will tie in with political chaos etc and you're going to end up with countries going back to uh, you know closing down their borders and protecting their own interests you know and maybe the the Trump administration that's their grand vision that's what they see and they're and they're setting themselves up to be best positioned to deal with the world on that basis you know no more monolithic blocks but basically the world going back to the size of the country and the influence and power each individual country has and that's the pecking order you know um, and Europe is obviously you know a major a major kind of European countries are major I mean, being you know the most developed countries in the world and all that kind of stuff are major major uh, prizes in that sense of, of having good strategic partnerships with those individual countries and stuff you know but uh, yeah, it's all a bit chaotic. Well, well, Neil, you mentioned um, the the kind of increase in expenditure uh, on the military by Trump, and uh, you know, putting more boots on the ground in Syria and other places. Um, you know, we, we've read for the first time that uh, some of um, the American military's actions in Yemen have actually been effectively targeting Al Qaeda. Um, though it it may be an entirely mixed bag because in other places where we continue to hear about civilians in Mosul and Iraq getting killed by Americans. Um, I'm just wondering if the Trump administration in making these uh, anti-Iranian rhetorical statements and, and increasing expenditures on the military, are they, could it be that they're just buying themselves time that they're that they're trying to quiet down the uh, the kind of neocon militaristic voices in Washington uh, for just long enough to um, a- allow themselves to get situated and 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 kind of um, stabilized with a, a good team where they can actually affect uh, the types of um, anti-war uh, policies that they that Trump ran on. Is that possible, or, or do we think that uh, it's that a good possibility is, um, succumbing to uh, the the pressures and the influences of the of the neocon the war on terror, war on Russia mindset? It's a good possibility. Um, can't be answered, I'm afraid, until like four years time. But um, <laughs> it's a very good possibility. You've just made the case for why people should remain open about Trump and his administration, and why we don't come down on him like both A, the liberals who hated him from the start, and B, those who were like, yay, Trump, and now are like, boo, Trump, he's just another neocon, uh, Zionist-loving, he's just the same as all the rest. He's in with the bankers. He was in with the banks from the start. I mean, some analysts, like, uh, I'm not going to name names, but they were praising Trump, you know, to the rafters until he was elected. Then they jumped for joy, and, like, here we are just a couple of months later, and they're just, you know, um, dancing on his grave. He's not even done yet. He's only just started. So, yeah, you just made the case for why, you know, you should just 
people should keep in mind. Get, apply Joe's analysis to Turkey, now to the U.S., and imagine the scale. Imagine you come in, you're new, and there's a way things have been done for a long time in this big apparatus sprawling. It's partly directed and it's partly just functions naturally as big organic monster machine, you know? Are you going to be able to put reins on that beast in the space of four weeks, six weeks, and then control those reins? No. No chance. So, yeah, <laughs> it takes time. Yeah, you're right. There, there may be parallel attempts to shift things abroad. Syria, for example, I wondered if that was a change for the better when I saw all those uh, convoys of U.S. troops making themselves be seen in Syria. That was a change because previously it was all, I mean, it's all covert stuff. You would never admit to having boots on the ground, except maybe, you know, oh, Obama's sending in special forces. Where? Well, we don't know. They're not going to follow up and tell us exactly what they were doing there. But here, since Trump came in, they're there waving the, the, the U.S. flags are flying off the back of the Humvees. And we know exactly where they are. They're in this Kurdish control region in the northeast of the country. Um, you know, and there's also been rumors, denied, but rumors nevertheless of outright cooperation with the Russian air forces in coordinated strikes against who exactly, we're not sure, probably some mercenaries that both sides agree they don't want anymore. So, yeah, there could be some shifts taking place. On Yemen, though, you said Al-Qaeda, <laughs> Al-Qaeda uh, in Yemen. Al-Qaeda in Yemen is, is more myth than, let's say, Al-Qaeda-like types of nut jobs in Syria. Because Yemen, you, you've got more like an actual civil war. Um, what are American troops doing there? It's a complete freaking mess. Mm-hmm. Everywhere's a mess that U.S. troops go. But in Yemen's case, I mean, put it this way, the, the people who are Al-Qaeda militants one day are getting salaries and weapons from the Saudi-backed Yemeni leader Al-Hadi the next day. And that's all coming from the U.S. Uh it's it's really unclear. Like this this raid that happened a week into Trump's presidency in the center of Yemen, more or less on the borderlands between the, the divide of the Houthi rebels and those loyal to the Hadi government. Uh, it is it is it is no clearer. Weeks later, what that was supposed to do. The the only thing that's supposedly clear because Trump has officially publicly owned it is that he gave the green light to it. I still find that extremely unlikely. Five days, six days into becoming president, he's fully briefed on a U.S. Navy SEALs operation to retrieve hard drives from a hut in a village in the mountains of Yemen, uh, which, missing, which mission somehow succeeded despite leveling the village with overwhelming firepower and being met with equivalent, well, semi-equivalent firepower from the ground, which downed the U.S., Osprey, rototilt, complicated piece of hardware. That, that, that whole operation is still like completely murky. But it, in general, um, yeah, there is basically no, there, there is no, we're going into Yemen to stop the bad guys so that they don't come to our country and blow, and blow up our cities. It's an actual civil war, and they're intervening. They're intervening, as I made the case in my article. They're intervening because they're really up against Iran, and they know it. 
hence the hysteria yeah. about Iran again. The Houthi rebels are armed to the teeth in the sense of heavy firepower. They've been able to hit at least the outskirts of cities in Saudi Arabia. They've been able to fire across into the Horn of Africa with these ballistic missiles, and they're getting them from Iran, and they're actually probably originally Chinese technology. So um, there, yeah. you, there you kind of see the big war happening in this little country, you know, mm-hmm. where Trump... W- Trump has quickly learned he has to start to talk the same narrative as the Pentagon because he's finally going, oh, I see. So it, it's a proxy war between mm-hmm. us and Russia, China via Iran. Yeah, but they're being, I think they're yeah. being more realistic about it as well, and that's a change in the Trump administration, and it is a change for the better. And people have to remember that you know, we don't live in an ideal world. We don't live in a, in, a, in a very nice kind of world where there's nice people running things. Uh, so a change from the better... A change for the better means that things are still pretty crap and nowhere near close to what you would want to see happen. But you have to, have to understand that from from the get-go, you know. Um, but the change in approach that came with the Trump administration seems to be one that's more reasoned and takes stock of realities a little bit more than Obama under Obama and what you would have had under Clinton. You know, they, the Trump administration and the people in in the U.S. certainly some some sections of them who weren't, who are probably more in line with uh, what what Trump and his people are, are thinking in terms of taking a more more reason more reasonable approach to things. Um, you see that they, uh, since he's since he since he's uh, become president and and the changes he's been trying to make effectively are, it's not about you know. Um, pulling back and let's not have any more American wars. It's like we still got to maintain and protect our interests around the world, but we're taking stock of the fact uh, of, of the rise of, of Russia, the power uh, of the Russian military, what Russia can do. Uh, Russia is now um, a major world power, uh, and China as well, China's growing military might, etc. They're taking all of that um, into consideration and looking at it reasonably realistically as opposed to what Clinton would have done the Clinton gang and the people who would have uh, rallied around her, which was that America's best, America will always be best, and if Russia is uh, threatening our position as global hegemon, then we're going to go to war with Russia in some way or other. And if China doesn't play play ball, then we're going to bomb Russia, bomb China as well. Hillary was going to bomb everybody. That's what was the Hillary slash Obama slash that faction within the US that has been ruling things for quite a long time, is that the way America maintains its global hegemony is by just... forcibly subjugating everybody. It doesn't matter who it is. <clears throat> and and if, if there's evidence that we might not win a war against that person, well, I don't care. I'm going to remove that piece of data from my mind and go with the uh, USA, USA, USA narrative and we will win anyway, no matter what, because we always have done. That ma- like completely mindless uh, or, or insane approach, uh, just because it's always worked before, it has to work uh, forever. That was the madness you would have got with Hillary Clinton, and it would have pushed the world over the edge, probably into some kind of uh, nuclear conflict or some major conflict. The Trump administration is taking, uh, seems to be taking a different approach, like I said, which is they're accepting the fact that they can't do what they've always done, but they've got their own strategy about how to work around that. You know, so you're not going to see any significant reduction, let's say, in military U.S. military uh, involvement overseas, but you probably will see. Uh, 
uh, a reduction in whole-scale bombing of countries by NATO or by the U.S. Um, because they can't do it anymore, and at least the people in the Trump administration recognize, uh, you know, kind of have their own interests at heart, have America's interests at heart, i.e. if they see that they would like something to happen, but they would, they would be defeated in attempting to do it, well, then they won't do it. Hillary Clinton would not have had any such qualms or any such sanity. She would have just, uh, you know, go ahead anyway and just imagine, just believe that we'll win. Um, <clears throat> so she was extremely dangerous, and for that reason, that's why we say that the Trump administration is a better option. But it's a better option in a really crappy uh, world where uh, war and conflict of some description is the is the uh, is the rule, you know. So um, people just need to leave behind the idea of you know rainbows and unicorns dancing on rainbows. Speaking of war hawks, did you you guys hear the what Senator McCain said about Senator Rand Paul this week? Huh? Uh, He's working uh, for Putin. Right. What, what was he getting at? He, he accused him of working for Putin because Paul was urging what? A reduction so, in the military okay. budget? Uh, there was some kind of vote or... Um, motion that was being put through by McCain. Uh, oh, it was to do with Montenegro joining NATO, wasn't it? There it was, yeah. And Rand Paul was like, uh, I'm not so sure about this. Cause he, and he mentioned a reason why when he was interviewed after the fact. He said, well, for starters, a majority of the population don't want it. Mm. Can you imagine hearing that under Obama or Clinton? And McCain decided that this was ground, ground, enough grounds to accuse, on the Senate floor, to accuse Rand Paul mm-hmm. of working for Putin. Yeah, McCain, <laughs> McCain is the public face of that kind of uh, faction, the Hillary Clinton faction I'm talking about, who are, like, just bomb everybody because we are America, you know? And, and those people are delusional. You, know, you remember uh, when the, the Pentagon... Chief, what do you call it, Ash Carter and that other general dude who was the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I think, or something like that, were telling him about, telling McCain, they were being questioned by McCain in, in Congress about about establishing a no-fly zone in Syria, just in Syria, just late last year. And they said, well, no, we can't really do that, you know, because Russia's air defences are so so good, we wouldn't be able to do that. <clears throat> Russia already has a no-fly zone, we can't uh, expect to put one on top of that. And McCain was like, really? Really? America? America can't impose a no-fly zone. Really, in Syria. What's wrong with you? We're America, and we impose, impose no-fly zones wherever the hell we want. What's wrong with you? Just freaking do it. Just get the military to do it. That's, what's, that's, what, that's what we do, right? Just America, military, in another country, bomb it, whatever. That's do, a direct order, son. D- just do it, okay? That's, it works. <laughs> that's their attitude, you know, and those are the crazies, you know, and people should be thankful uh, that, they're, that they've been kind of pushed aside to some extent. And uh, and the you know the the price to pay for that for all out war not waged by those kind of crazies is that you have to put up with Trump's big orange face. The Donald met yeah, with people just can't stand his face, can they? Yeah. I mean they're all up at arms about every every little thing he's ever said or done, and his his anti Islam travel ban is that they call it. But then when it comes to you know airstrikes in Yemen and you know just 
hundreds of thousands of people on you know, starving to death and people being murdered every day. Nobody, they don't care a thing about that. That yeah. doesn't matter to them. Exactly. The propaganda is very effective. Amazing. Corey, the Donald met with certain world leaders this week. Who, who did he see? Who did Trump Angela see Merkel. this week? Angela Merkel? Oh, yes, and he refused to shake her vessel or somebody's hand, wasn't it? Her hand. Her hand? Oh, no. Yeah. You don't hear about that? Yeah. There's a video, you know? And, you know, after they have their little chat, he, he met her, and there's a picture of them shaking hands when he met her, <clears throat> taking her into the White House. Uh, press flesh. Come on in, Angela. What's going on? How's it going? Uh, and then... They have their talk, whatever, and then they get in front of the press and they're sitting in those two chairs that you've seen Obama and previous president sitting with someone else in front on two chairs facing the press and they're getting a few questions, whatever, but they've done their questions and the media starts shouting, handshake, 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 handshake. And, uh, and that's a customary thing where they do this kind of like long 10, 20, 30 second handshake so everybody can get a good picture. And the media's shouting handshake and Donald's just like looking away from them. He's just like as if, I'm not listening to you, I'm not hearing anything, la, 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 la. And and then to the point where Merkel kind of leans over and you can hear her saying to him, do you want to do a handshake? And he didn't even look at her, he just looked away and didn't do a handshake. And her <laughs> face was like, well, fine then, whatever, you know. <laughs> and then we hear these stories about, um, you know, him saying to her that, uh, that Germany owed massive amounts of money to NATO and blah, 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 you know. And that's kind of interesting, you know, that he's putting pressure on European countries to uh, to kind of, when he says contribute, pay your dues to NATO, i.e. <clears throat> spent more money on military <clears throat> within the context of NATO, i.e. within the context of America, i.e. spent more money on increasing military ties between your country and America, and, and between, uh, uh, yeah, between your military and our military, basically. Uh, and he's getting, and that was a bone of contention, that was what kind of, was maybe a acrimonious discussion they had or whatever, you know, and that's what he's focusing on, individual country by individual country. And it ties in with what you were saying earlier on, Neil, about, you know, they're still sending, there's more troops being sent to individual European countries, more U.S. troops being sent to those countries. And it's almost, and it it, it does uh, lend itself to the argument of, of a kind of a, of the Trump administration looking towards a, a refactionalization of Europe. You know, we don't want to deal with some EU bloc, uh, you know, EU kind of commission uh, that, that speaks for all of Europe. We want to, in, to deal with each individual country. And this seems to be their response. And this is them taking stock of the reality that Russia and Europe and Eurasia in general are all part of one contiguous landmass. And that the stuff that we've been talking about where it's, it's kind of like the bells have tolled for American hegemony in the world because of Eurasia, well, their response to that is not to just say, well, bomb all of Eurasia into submission. They say, no, okay, let's accept, you know, we'll spend a few months or six months looking at that and going and agonizing over it and finally accepting that, yeah, actually, that's actually true. And we are screwed if there is in the next 30, 40 years in terms of Eurasian integration. And the best way to do, to, to, to confront that is to encourage the breakup of Europe because countries that are divided against each other are much more easily influenced and you can make better deals with individual countries than with one monolithic bloc that might end up turning against America. 
if that happened, if the winds changed and the EU powers eventually said, let's have our own army and let's put, look, to, let's, let's overnight at some point in time, overnight let's do away with anti-Russian rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And let's all be friends with Russia again. You don't believe it could happen overnight? Of course it could. As fast as it happened, they could turn it around. And America, under Trump facing that, says we got to do something about this because it looks like it's it's basically inexorably it's moving in that direction. What do we do about it? We can't stop it. We're not willing to bomb, go to war with all of Eurasia, with Russia and China at the same time, for example, because we cannot. So let's do something to thwart as best we can, Eurasian integration, and the first step would be break up Europe. And the first step to breaking up Europe is to establish direct ties on an individual basis with European countries rather than going through EU diplomats who speak supposedly for all European countries. Mm-hmm. Well, meeting Merkel is like meeting the most powerful Like meeting leader. Hitler. no. Like meeting the most powerful leader in Europe. I mean, when you're talking to the EU, you're talking to Merkel. Basically, in, in real terms. Biggest economy in Europe, that is the European project. It's Germany. Mm-hmm. So, she was the first one. What is, what, what is, let's, let's see if we can work this out. What is his real beef then with Germany when he says you have to pay? Cause he, wait. Uh, if you follow that theory, he wants to break up Europe and deal with it on a unilateral basis and prevent it from surely surely not being as nice as he can to Angela Merkel pushes her away. Yeah, well, we don't know how nice he was or wasn't to Angela Merkel. The media was all over it, like the, the liberal media was all over it. Well, just add Germany to the long list of countries that no, well, I'm not Donald talking Trump about the handshake. pissed off. I'm talking about the subsequent thing where he says Germany has to pay. It's not paying enough. It's not paying what it owes. And then Germany's German official statement in well, response ger- is... German officials? Yes, we do. German officials' response. But who are they? And what's their agenda? You know? Because in Europe, you're going to have people who are the, the EU power brokers, the kind of... The, the princes of Europe, basically, who see themselves under the, the whole EU uh, project as, 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 well, they're not happy with just being a politician in Germany. They want to be a politician over all of Europe, and they want to concentrate all of Europe's power, all 500, 600 million people and all the resources under their control. So, there, like I was saying before, there's factions, uh, obviously, within within different countries, and the Trump administration seems to be, at this stage anyway, seems to be at loggerheads with the EU bureaucrats and is trying to kind of tease out or make establish relationships with people who they think or, or create situations where they could establish relationships with people who would be more would be more in line with the with the exit. And all strategy. the while Russia's accused of trying to break up Europe. I know. Well of it's course hilarious. Yeah. Um Another person, another foreign head of state Trump met with this week was the Saudi delegation. But while the Saudis sent the king's son, who's defense minister, to meet Trump at the White House, handshake, and they did the smiley, smiley handshake, despite all the anti-Saudi rhetoric in the election campaign, the Saudi king is in China. He's left now, but he was in China signing off on deals apparently worth... Trade deals worth $65 billion. 
uh, that was part of a trip. Uh, the, the media, I mean, the, me- the media homed in on the, the, the size of his his, uh, his caravan yeah. that he took with him to Asia, and it was unbelievable. But he goes to China, Indonesia, largest Muslim country in the world, by the way, Japan, and other Asian countries. And then he sends his son to meet Trump. Hmm. Let, me, let me try and explain, just so people can have it in their heads, what we're dealing with here and why it's difficult to really get an idea of where things are going other than chaos will ensue. For most of, <clears throat> let's say for most of the, for most of the last, uh, let's call it 300 years, um, the world was made up of Western Europe, North America, and that was it in terms of the industrial powers in the world, i.e. the rest of the world, if you just look at Western Europe and North America, that was the world, and the rest was the uh, the dead zone, the exploitable zone, the insignificant zone, the zone where you just took stuff from to feed the power center, which was this tiny geographically very small part of the world, which was Western Europe and North America. And it's only in the last... Well, I would almost say it's pretty much in the last 20 years that that has begun to change. 20, 25 years that that has begun to change. And it has changed very rapidly. The progression of technology, progression of the modern world, the internet age, the instant communications, and the rapid increase in technology. And not only the rapid increase in technology, but in that short period of 20, 25 years, the spread of that technology, the development of this dead zone part of the world, the rest, the majority of the rest of the world, where that technology then has very quickly become uh, available to the rest of that world, uh, to, to those areas of the world. Not only that, but it's technology that was kind of basically off the shelf. Those countries who previously that were previously undeveloped did not have to spend a hundred years developing their own technology. You could go from throwing paper planes one day to flying drones the next day if you were lucky enough to steal one from America. So you could be turned, in, in historical terms, from a, a backwards, kind of like Stone Age kind of country to a 21st century technology advanced country overnight in historical terms. And that is what, ha- that is what has happened. So this old world order where basically Western Europe and North America were the center of the world for so long has almost overnight changed. Now, the way pe- people are reacting to that, that, that part of Western Europe and North America having to react to that and having to deal with that sudden dramatic shift in, 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 techn- in, in, the, in the world power basically and the influences in the world and who's, who's on first and stuff, i.e. not them so much anymore. It's just very, very hard for them to deal with, and they don't know. I mean, of course, like I've been saying, one option was for a, p- a person in that position who has always been on top, top, and suddenly finds that there's these competitors who just came out of nowhere overnight and were able to uh, pose a, a threat to them. Well, one option is to be a psycho about it and say, bomb the crap out of them, and not think about the fact that they have the ability to bomb you back. That's what was Hillary Clinton. Uh, so we're dealing in this, in this situation in, in very relatively... Uh, a very, very short period of time, historically speaking, of the emergence of the rest of the world kind of coming online with what used to be just 
the the center of the world basically, and uh, and it's difficult to predict who's what's going to happen. And you have all these people scrambling for power, scrambling for you know grabbing grabbing what they can, you know, making deals, arguing, fighting, shouting, screaming because they all can now, you know. And previously, if Turkey, if a country like Turkey started making threats against the the first world, well, they wouldn't get the first sentence out before they'd be bombed into silence again. And that would be the end of it. You know? Uh, but that can't happen anymore. So it's this new reality that they're having to deal with, and it's very disturbing for people in the West and powers in the West, and they're not doing very well at dealing with it. And they're trying to scramble to come up with a way to... Uh, and the big question is, are they going to deal with it from a reality-based perspective, or are they going to uh, just kind of blunder forward as if uh, the way it has been is the way it will always be? A world in crisis is a world in change. Another first this week, apparently. Syrians claim they shot down two Israeli jets. They, they well, say shot down one but hit a second one of four jets sent in to Syria from Israel ostensibly to hit ISIS but the Syrians were having none of it. Oh, yeah, well like there's really claims that Hezbollah. hit Hezbollah. Right. To hit Hezbollah, to, hit, to stop weapons, weapons reaching Hezbollah who are fighting in Syria against ISIS and other mercenaries. Mm-hmm. Um... The Israelis deny it. They say, no, no, we got home fine. All troops are accounted for. All planes are accounted for. Well, they would say that, wouldn't they? Um, I'm inclined to believe the Syrians, I think, is a first. And I think they're freaking out. Because the defense minister, or is he defense minister? The the crazy one, Lieberman, mm-hmm. has threatened, uh, next time if the Syrian aerial defense apparatus acts against our planes, we will destroy it. Well, that's fight and talk. Why didn't you do it at the time? And specifically, it seemed like some kind of... Well, <clears throat> I have a, a statement here claiming that they shot surface-to-air S-200 missiles at Israeli planes. S-200 suggests it was a Russian installation. Was it that? Who knows? That's what the Syrians said they used. So their air defenses kicked in or were activated to target the Israeli jets. And... After the fact, the Israelis are saying, you do that again, we'll take them out. Well, <laughs> you would have taken them out if you could have, but you couldn't. <laughs> so I, I think that's... Yeah, the Russians thing. updated those uh, missile defense systems back in November. Uh, right. Shoigu announced that they had all been refurbished, and so now I guess we get to see what they were... <laughs> see them in action. Yeah. Uh, the interesting thing about all this is... Uh, is the response in the Israeli media, um, Haaretz and uh, Times of Israel have come out, and uh, you know the, the attitude is, how dare you retaliate against us going into your airspace and, mm. and attacking uh, people who are allied with your government? Uh, and some have described it as a kind of uh, you know game changer or, or words to that effect. Um, you know, Syria is the, the dictator of Syria is now. Uh, emboldened against Israel um, because of his successes, you know, against ISIS. And, um, you know, it, it's the same belligerence uh, that, that we hear from other countries against Turkey. You know, how, how dare you uh, kind of react to us treating you like crap? Uh, you're supposed to take it and like it. 
Um, so uh, we're seeing that. We're seeing a lot of belligerence. Netanyahu's made a statement to the effect that, uh, you know, everyone must accept Israel's uh, position on this and, and right to defend itself. Everyone, uh, you know, speaking in code to Russia, uh, mm-hmm. you know, respect Israel's right to um, to to be an aggressor uh, with Syria. And just a little bit of background, uh, Israel took a neutral position in the war against ISIS. How you can take a neutral position, uh, you know, it, it speaks volumes about Israel's... Absolutely. Uh, they invented the uh, war on terror. And then yes. suddenly they're, oh, we're neutral in this. Come on. Right. So we're supposed to believe that Assad is so bad that that they can't say or act against, you know, a, a group like ISIS or Al Qaeda in in uh, in Syria. It's absurd. Well, far from being neutral, um, far from being neutral, they were actually uh, facilitating and helping uh, jihadis on the certainly on the border. Uh, now, Joe, from, that from can't the, be from, true. From the Golan Heights down to down into Syria, what? I said, that can't be true, Joe. There's a billboard on my drive to work every day that tells me that Israel's the number one fighter against ISIS and terrorism. Safest place for Christians in the Middle East. Oh, yeah? So we should all go there. You're telling there, me maybe. that's a lie? Yeah. I'm saying it's propaganda, man. you got to believe it. Propaganda <laughs> exists. Um, oh, so we uh, safest place for Christians as well as Jews? Yep, safest place. So maybe we should go there. If you feel threatened. <laughs> it's a... This is a billboard in North Carolina by the Christians for Israel or, or something to that effect. No. Uh, who, uh, well, anybody who, feel, anybody who feels threatened by ISIS in America should just move to Israel. Oh. You know, you, I mean, you'd be a bit closer to where most ISIS members are, but you'd be safer, apparently. You might end up you sharing a, a hospital them. ward with them. Yeah, you could what? But... You could treat them. I mean, if you're a nurse, you go over yeah. there. You can treat ISIS in the hospital and convert them to Christianity. <laughs> um, there's a little story. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure there's anything significant about it, but there's a story from a couple of days ago about a bag containing a laptop and other items was stolen from a Secret Service agent's vehicle in New ah, York. Yeah, and apparently it was uh, contained floor, pan- floor plans and, evac- and the evacuation protocol for Trump Tower. Uh, well. So, who stole that? I think it was Hillary Clinton, maybe. There's also a report today about a spike in hackings of mobile phones in D.C. Yeah. So, maybe they're going to... This Obviously, with this kind of story, you could think that... Uh, who stole the plans? Trump Tower. Oh, it was some jihadi or maybe mm. a white supremacist group. Not a white supremacist group. A social justice warrior group stole them, and they're going to blow up uh, Trump Tower. If Trump Tower blows up, you know, um, that it was... As a result of someone stealing the floor plans, because obviously the only way you can blow up Trump Tower is if you have the floor plans. Um, it seems like something like that could easily backfire and just empower. I mean, any sort of you know uh, attack against Trump or anything that makes him seem even more sympathetic. I mean, or sympathetic to a lot of people. Um, I mean, because it seems like a lot of those social justice warriors. I don't know. I mean, are there? Are some of their hearts in the in in the right place? They're just so propagandized. They don't even. They just really think that they're attacking Hitler. They really think that the the fate of the world is on on you know on their shoulders. Yeah, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, 
The thing is, I mean, some of the, that in and of itself is pretty pathological when you ignore all all of reality and right. everything he's done. But still, right? You, you shouldn't you, you shouldn't have a strong position on anything, uh, socially speaking, you know, or in terms of world of, world affairs, unless you've made sure that you're fully fully informed, as informed as you possibly can be, you know, and you've thought about it a lot. And these people don't seem to do that. They have big blind spots, but they come out with these uh, extremist positions, and of course they're justified. They feel justified in their extremist positions because. Uh, because they say what, they're, what they advocate is extreme justice, i.e. justice for everybody, a better world, a world where everybody's happy and shiny and friendly and, and nobody's discriminated against and, you know, it's all good. Uh, and that's, in that sense, their hearts are on, on the right place because that's a, a noble ideal. But the problem is it doesn't take, take stock of, of the reality of the situation um, and the forces that are opposing uh, that kind of a world from, from being created. Where nobody's discriminated against, and you know it's all peace and love and bunny rabbits and unicorns and stuff, um, and and they don't see that uh, that there are people uh, in their own countries who are working against that. Not only working against that in other countries, but working against that in their own country. So they're fighting against their own system type thing, and they don't really see that because they're so easily diverted to. In their like, own groups as well. Yeah, and they don't, they're so easily diverted to, to boogeymen in, in foreign countries, which just makes them patsies for imperial aggression, imperial domination by, by Western powers over, over other people in the world. So they're effectively, they end up uh, being, uh, they end up, end up being subverted or having their ideals and their idealism and their energy subverted uh, to, in service to exactly the opposite of what they want to achieve, you know? Because you, you can imagine there's lots of those social justice warriors who are um, are social justice minded people who who are against you know the bad evil dictator in some other country that they read about in the, in the newspaper right or they heard about it on the news. Uh, they're against those people. But they don't inform themselves and realize that very often that's propaganda and it's not the the, the situation is very nuanced and and in fact they're if they support such a thing they would be lending their energies to. Uh, increasing the suffering of people, so their hearts are in the right place, but they're just very, very badly informed about things, and um, and even in their own countries, you know, uh, for social justice issues within their own country, um, they need to be very well informed, and they need to understand human psychology and the nature of human beings and how uh, you know where human beings, as a general rule, are at. Uh, in terms of um, would would they be able to if they could would if they had the power to do it would those social justice types do they think they would actually be able to um, create a society where everybody was equal or there was no discrimination at least uh, would they, how would they get everybody in their society in their country for example to to get on board with that how would they end up? Would they end up having to enforce that, or impose that on people? Because there's certain some people just based on human nature, are a bit kind of atavistic. They're a bit kind of they're Neanderthalish kind of throwbacks. Ultimately, and in certain situations, they can they would turn to naturally turn to discrimination or violence or whatever. I mean, the whole idea of them being able to craft this ideal society out of out of the state of the world and the human beings that inhabit it right now is a bit bit of a pipe dream, you know. Um, they're going too far, too quickly, and they're not taking stock of where they are and seeing what's the first step towards that. And they, they would, you know, if they if they really realized it, if they knew about it, they would realize that 
uh, even taking that first step is extremely difficult, you know. Um, you can't just wish, you know, you can't just wish upon a star and, and, and hope things will happen and just say, can't we all just get along, you know. And it's even <clears> getting <throat> the, the aspect of it goes against almost the nature of of human life on Earth or the point of human existence, which a big part of the point of human existence seems to be confronting and overcoming adversity. So if those people want to remove adversity effectively, are they not removing one of the core points of human life on Earth? The thing that, and very often, it's through adversity that people actually have a sense of satisfaction and they find a meaning in life. But if they were to take, some of these social justice people, if they were to take their ideology so far, they would, or too far, or as far as they seem to want to, some of them, they would remove the ability for, you know, many people, the people in the society, to actually find a, a sense of meaning or satisfaction in life by overcoming the adversity that, that is inherent in, in, in human nature, or in human existence, or in, in human society, you know. Um, well, and when you put it that way, it's just people wishing for an easy life, which in right. of, in and of itself, is, there's nothing altruistic about that. No. There's nothing, you know, socially, you know, that's just, that's maybe the biggest social injustice yeah. is to wish everybody's had an easy life, no troubles. I mean, it's just selfishness yeah. packaged under, you know. Yeah. And I don't know where society can go when you try and impose an ideology on it, like an ideology like theirs of peace and love and unicorns dancing on rainbows. Uh, when you try and impose that kind of a, uh, and you have to ultimately impose it because and if you're quite attached to that ideology and you really feel your your pain and the pain of everybody around you, you say it has to stop now and you end up having to impose peace on earth basically, you know. Uh, and and that that is almost inherently a, a violent proposition, you know, to impose something on, on everybody all at once. Um, and yeah, so... You know, they need to think about that stuff more, much more, and they tend to fall into black and white thinking, and they don't really, because it's so nuanced and it's such a difficult thing to do to change the world, to make the world a better place on mass. It's so, it's almost like there's a there's a there's an injunction, a natural universal injunction against that ever happening, and maybe they should think about what that is, and maybe it's what I said previously about the need for adversity. You know. Um, but it's extremely difficult to do that when you have to take into consideration the way societies work and the way human beings work en masse, how they operate, how they think, how fickle they are, how they can be swung one way or another, even within themselves and as a group and stuff. Extremely difficult to actually deal with. And and if you try and impose it and try and force it through, you end up creating really bad situation for society as a whole. And then what are you going to do? Go, oops, sorry, I just wanted total justice, but I've screwed the whole country up. It broke. And it broke, and uh, so yeah, those people just don't. The people it seems the people who have the ability or the proclivity to think the least tend to have the loudest voices. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the the most. It seems to me the original idea behind you know what social justice you know like an actual form of social justice is just the basic idea that you know take care of your own house, make sure your right. own house is in order, and then if somebody else needs help. You help them, right? But you take care of your own life. You get your own. Everything's in order, and you hope other everybody else is doing the same thing. Social justice, right? Work. Yeah, and it's been said before. Many, yeah, it's been said before many times. It's almost a cliche and stuff. But the idea that if you want to change the world, change yourself. Mm-hmm. Because that's true. 
you know? These people want to have, have one group of people and impose it on everybody. No, you have to allow each person to come to the decision that they are responsible as, as individuals uh, for the progress or the, the improvement or the, the nature, you know, how well their society is going. Each individual is responsible. Each individual has to take responsibility because the only thing you can really change is yourself and the only thing you can really have a positive impact, impact on is the people around you and your you know, local small number of people basically that you're, you're close to. You know? But if every single person on this planet did that, assumed that responsibility, then overnight the world would change if they all did it at once. That's how you change the world. But each person has to do it and not see it as some kind of megalomaniac, megalomaniacal plot to kind of transform the world by my own hands type of thing but you do mm -hmm. it yourself within the scope of your own ability to do it which is very very small and then have every other one of the 8 billion people on the planet do the same thing then the world changes but if it if so, everybody if so the rest Joe, of the people on the planet don't do that well then tough shit you can't make them <laughs> so where, where where would you say for instance like Martin Luther King Jr. fits into the, this whole scheme because he was a social justice warrior, and uh, he was trying to raise awareness on a number of different issues. Yeah. Um, maybe he was realistic about, uh, I think he was realistic about his ability to uh, change the world. And an argument could be made that he, he did have, a, he did change himself um, in, in his acts of bravery and, and uh, allowing himself to get arrested in order to uh, challenge the... Uh, the powers that be at the time in the 60s and the 50s. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, in, in, in distinction to a lot of people who just don't have the information, as you said, mm -hmm. uh, who, who are unaware of, of what they're shouting about, who, who don't realize that they're tools of, of uh, an elite faction of uh, controllers, uh, that's certainly a, um, an important thing to keep in mind here. You, you just made um, the distinction, Alan, mm -hmm. between someone who's highly informed mm -hmm. and people who aren't. Right. So right, right. there you've got, I wouldn't call yeah. Martin Luther King a social justice warrior. Of the type that we're talking about, yeah. No. In the way it is today, like yeah. a clueless kind of like a person who's really, as, as Corey was saying, is in, in it for themselves, really, ultimately. They have the feel, they only really feel their own pain and their own kind of like... They don't want any suffering for themselves, basically, and the way they justify that is by projecting it out onto other people, you know. Um, but also, people like Martin Luther King, uh, first of all, they had a, they're very, they're very rare, very few, far few, and far, few and far between. They have an ability mm -hmm. to kind of speak the truth in very simple terms that uh, gets kind of like galvanizes a lot of people or, or speaks to a lot of people, and they're also all assassinated. So you you can tell if you're one of those people, uh, you uh, you probably have you probably you probably agonize a lot over what you should and shouldn't do, and you, you think a lot, you've read a lot, and you've and you've thought a lot, uh, almost uh, interminably about the problems of the world and the problems of society, and you've come to uh, some conclusion, and uh, and you you find that uh, there's a there's a positive response to. To what you're saying, and you know that what you're saying is generally all positive. It's arguing for simple, basic human rights for for people, at one section of people who are clearly being discriminated against, uh, mm -hmm. and also you realize, and you get more and more, more and more tension, and then you get assassinated. 
It's <laughs> part of the part of the plan. So those are the, those are the those distinctions. That's a checklist. You know, you can check all of them off and say, "Yep, got them all except haven't been assassinated yet." Oops. Well, step by step plan uh, by Joe Quinn. <laughs> Maybe I'll get a flag jacket. You know? Well, another way of putting it is, you're prepared to pay the price. Yeah. You're prepared to forego certain things just to pursue one thing you found to be right. He himself put it that way, Martin Luther King. There comes a time when you must do something or say something because it is right. Um, and in the end, he had to pay with his life. But it means, in a, in a more mundane sense for yeah. us... Um, you have to. You have. To, if you're going to argue for social justice, you have to argue for objective social justice, not subjective social justice. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yep. and but a lot of people today are arguing for stuff that. Uh, I mean, or, or a better way to say it is that, you know, you're on the right track when the stuff that you're arguing for, arguing for, the social justice that you're arguing for, only helps people, a specific group that you're arguing for and thereby and, and by by implication will help everybody else in society and society as a whole as well. That it that it is within the natural order of things, let's say. You know? Uh, that it's positive from a I mean these aren't simple things to, to, to define either necessarily, but that it's positive from a globe a broad social perspective. And there you know you almost get back to kind of Ten Commandments type things, you know. Uh, and no, that's what I, by a certain, in, a, in a sense, that's what I mean by by objective. You know, they're quite simple, and they're kind of universally true. And nobody anywhere would necessarily agree with. No sane person would disagree with them, you know. Um, but when it becomes very subjective, and and kind of and and by that implication, if it's taken far enough, deviates from a, almost from a natural order of things, or becomes very very polemic and um you know that then uh you, you can you know that you're kind of in very subjective and potentially not very positive waters you know for for society as a whole it might make your life a bit better but you have a responsibility to all of society as well because you're a fu- you're a single unit of society and where society goes you go if society rises you rise if society falls you fall Well, I, I like the uh, objective social justice warrior mm. um, description. I think that uh, I think that really nails it. Well, I think we've covered most of our topics tonight, have we? I just want to recommend something. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, on SOT, we have an article. Its name is Banks Are Evil. It's time to get painfully honest about this. It was put up yesterday. And uh, aside from the author's um, description of, of what the banking industry actually is and how evil it is, he's got this um, kind of information graphic video which explains wealth distribution in the U.S., which is profound. I mean, if, if you ever thought you had a grasp on just how, um, how much wealth is in the hands of a few, the 1%, believe me, uh, you have no idea. And, 
it's very well made. I hope a lot of people get to see it. Um, and uh, it really gives you some idea of just how true it is that the U.S. is, in fact, run by an oligarchy. Mm. Uh, so, is it documentary? Evil, it's time to get. What's that? A documentary, right? No, it's just a. Um, it's just this kind of little information graphic video okay. inside of a very good article. Okay. Uh, that that puts things into perspective as mm. I've never seen them before, and. Mm. Uh, and just well worth catching, like all of Sot. Yeah. In fact, don't miss any article. Read the whole thing. It's what's, all good. What's the this title again? Really, one more time. It's uh, Banks Are Evil. It's time to get painfully honest about this. Okay. So, I'm going to check it out. I haven't seen it yet. All right. Well, I think we'll leave it there. I hope Bahar is still with us. Yes, I am. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. I can just make <laughs> Yes? I can just make uh, one comment about the social justice warriors. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course some people are saying that George Soros might be behind financing the movement in some ways and areas. And one thing I noticed is uh, for example from the women's march um, so a lot of people were you know wanting more rights for women, and there was also people wanting less racism or a better treatment for Muslims. And I was just going through Twitter, and I saw this picture of a demonstration at the time of the Iraq invasion, and it was like maybe a handful of people standing there with a, with a sign saying, don't go to Iraq, you know, don't don't spend money on the war and mm-hmm. don't be killing people over there. And there were like a handful of people. And if you look at the women's march and people talking about, you know, we care about Muslims and everything. And I'm saying, where were you at the time of the Iraq invasion? Right. So it's, it's a bit mind boggling to me. Yeah. That's human beings for you. Mind boggling. Yes. <laughs> That's the only comment I have. Okay. That's a good one. All right. Well, we'll leave it there for tonight, folks. Thanks to our listeners and our chatters. Hope you all had fun and found it mildly informing or informative. Um, and thanks to Bahar for joining us and giving us the scoop. Thank you for having me. All right. And we'll be back next week with another show to be announced. Until then, I hope you all have a good day, afternoon, evening, night, morning, whatever it is. So... Keep the peace. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.